I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join me on a quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small, encounters that move us beyond words. People were scared, right? They're scared about triggering us or saying the wrong thing. And we had to tell them, look, you can't really say the wrong thing. You can't really trigger us because we're already triggered all the way. Our, just, our two kids were just killed. Don't worry about it. You can't make it worse by saying something. <laughs> Not really. That's Colin Campbell. I feel very much on the margins of civilization. So when people don't even mention to me the most basic fact of my life, I really feel like I don't belong as a person. How can my experience be so far from yours that you are unable to just acknowledge my reality? That's Gail Lerner, Colin's wife. He's a theater and film writer and director. She's also a television and film writer and director. They live in Los Angeles. Together, Gail and Colin are the parents of two children, Ruby and Hart Campbell. The all-too-short lives of these beloved teenage children, killed by a drunk driver, and their parents' struggle to find a way forward after this unimaginable tragedy, are the reason for this episode of Constant Wonder. On June 8, 2019, both children, Ruby, 17, and her 14-year-old brother, Hart, died unforeseeably and senselessly. Colin and Gail were in the front seats of the car at the time of the crash. Colin's recent book about the family's unwanted journey covers crucial details of what they've been through, how their situation has been met by all the various people around them, and what they've learned as time goes on. Colin Campbell's book is titled Finding the Words, Working Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose. Gail says that watching Colin write through his pain entailed observing a kind of growth in him. Colin really started writing almost immediately about his experience. And seeing him do that, it was the way he was just writing toward his discomfort, toward his distress, it felt remarkably healing. I know that's growth. I see him growing in that way. Gail and Colin, such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for coming today. Hi, Marcus. Thank you so much for having us. This is our first time speaking together about our experience, so it's very special to be here. Thank you. And Colin? Yeah, and I'm, I'm honored to be here as well. Thank you. We've invited both of you to join with us here for an extended conversation for this particular episode of our podcast. Above all else, because we want to talk about talking, yes, but specifically the most difficult ones, the hardest ones that come after immeasurable loss, after death, bereavement. And I know enough about your family's story and what you have to offer us that I think before we address that awful night, the night of the accident, the tragedy, I, it just is imperative to get a sense for who these vibrant children, Ruby and Hart, were. And as I've been uh, thinking about it, Gail, Colin, I, it, it occurs to me that maybe we could do this by hearing about some of the places that matter to, to all of you, so much as a family together. And I know that one of them, for example, is the L.A. Arboretum. I've never been there. Um, Gail, uh, what, what, what drew you there? What did your family do there? The Arboretum is a wonderful place. I highly recommend you finish the podcast and jump in the car and go. <laughs> it's really exquisite. It's just this massive, massive garden, and it's split up between all different continents, hemispheres, and so there's an Australia garden, which kind of looks like a lunar garden. There's bamboo, there are old buildings, there's a lake. It's just full of amazing places to scramble and explore. There's a giant tree with really low spreading branches that Ruby and Hart were climbing on from, I think, the time when they were two, and you sort of, no one can even see you in the park. You like duck under the canopy, and it's just Exquisite. So we would always go there on a weekend and then afterward, this will sound like a commercial, but then we would go to the Din Tai Fung Dumpling House and have dumplings and just chat and laugh and sit together. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful place to be as a family. And Colin, did you just sit and watch them or did you climb the trees yourself? Oh, I definitely climbed the trees, yes. Well, I had to in the early days because it was 
scary because <laughs> you're up high and I wanted to be right next to them. But Ruby very quickly became an expert climber. So I would just be like hanging back, making sure heart was safe. There are peacocks there. There are a lot of peacocks that were brought over, I don't know, in the late 1800s, I think. And they're beautiful, but they're also a little scary. It turns out they're a little dangerous peacocks. <laughs> but, um, uh, and there were the, the bamboo stands, Ruby would climb the bamboo stands. How do you do that? You, you have to just basically be a part monkey, I think. <laughs> You're just climbing straight up a pole, basically. Let's talk about Joshua Tree, which, just like the L.A. Arboretum for your family, was a favorite place, an important magnet for you all. Yeah, we, we took them again since early, early in their lives. And what's wonderful about Joshua Tree is that there are these rocks you can climb, even, even as a little kid, because it's like you kind of find gentle slopes where you get pretty high up. And so they love to scramble on those rocks. And when they got older, we would just pull over the side of the road and just scramble into this rock formation and then get a little lost, spend a couple of hours, and then find your way back out again. Uh, and it was like a special private adventure that we could have every time. Well, have you been there at night? We have. Yes. <laughs> we went once with Ruby and Hart at night, and we were lying back on the rocks and we're looking up at the stars, when all of a sudden... Gail, do you we, want to finish the story? Yes. We we all start to feel like one after the other, these strange little sandpapery feelings on our arms and legs. We're shorts and t-shirts. It's the summer. It's hot even at night. And we look down and we realize that we are being lapped by kangaroo rats, who are these tiny, tiny fearless mice who come out at night in search of salt and moisture, which after a day of hiking in Joshua Tree, you are nothing but salt and sweat. And they were just feasting on us, and we were just, like, shrieking and laughing. It was very preposterous. Well, what would you do to get out of the situation? <laughs> well, they're tiny. We just stood up. Colin Campbell's parents live in Maine, and so that became a family destination. They vacationed there, the family cabin, one of Ruby and Hart's most favorite places in the whole world, their parents say. I asked Gail to read Hart's account of Christmas in Maine written when he was just seven or eight years old. My dad takes a saw and cuts the top off a tree in our backyard and brings it into our cabin. We decorate it with ornaments and then we decorate it with real candles. Then we light the candles and take pictures of it. We hang our stockings up. The people who are there are my mom, my dad, my sister, my grandma and grandpa, Uncle Christopher and his wife, Auntie Lisa and Auntie Kathy. And for the dogs, there's Cello and Ruffy and Lupe. Outside we make an igloo and when we're done with it, we go in. And then when we are finished and we've been in it a little too much and are a little bored of it, we go inside the cabin and drink hot cocoa with marshmallows in it. Ruby, I understand, was also a writer, Gail. Yes, Ruby was a wonderful writer. And are you familiar with a, a children's book? It was assigned in high schools a lot called The Witch of Blackbird Pond. Yes, my sisters read it. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a really wonderful book and it takes place during the Salem Witch Trial times. And the book is from the point of view of a woman who is thought to be a witch, but of course is a, a regular woman with agency, which at the time, I guess, branded you a witch. And Ruby had to write an alternate ending for The Witch of Blackbird Pond. And she wrote this outrageous murder where the woman who's being tried as a witch has a hidden knife and she kills someone and she sneaks away and she has a knife in her boot. And it is the most dramatic, wonderful, outrageous action escapade that is the last thing anyone was imagining. And it's, it's just fantastic. Like Re Ruby and Hart really, they had distinctive voices. No one could have possibly done or thought or written what Ruby wrote in the way she wrote it. She just embraced every opportunity to express herself. As we talk about these things, is it helpful to you having lost them, Colin? Is it helpful to just have another survey, another... Here I am, and we've just met today, and I'm a stranger to you. Is this worth doing? It's always worth doing, yeah, yeah. It always is painful, right? I'm always going to feel some pain, but it's always ultimately, um, you know, feeling, feeling good is a strange way to say it, but it feels right. It feels like it's something I want to do. It's a way of reasserting that they were here. They were here, they mattered, they changed me forever, and they go on impacting other people's lives by me sharing their stories. And I think a lot of people who encounter us, including friends and family, there's a real 
uneasiness about asking us about the kids and anxiety about will we want to talk about it is now a good time and the answer is really always it's always a good time my very very wonderful friend Corey when often I say like oh we're going to go talk to this person or talk to that person or speak at this she'll say are you sure that's a good idea and I love having her there as a guardrail because sometimes I say oh no that's actually pushing myself too hard there's leaning into the pain, which we really, really believe in. And then there's leaning in for a punch. And I'm really trying to learn the difference. But a chance to talk about them and tell stories and think that, oh, someone in the world will hear their name and think of them and Ruby or Hart's name will just like reverberate in their soul. Like a teeny bit of sonar is so important to me. I want to let both of you guide this conversation now because the next element has to do with the accident, the tragedy. I've already given the year. It happened in 2019. And I understand it happened near Joshua Tree. Yeah, yeah. We had, the weekend before, we had another amazing weekend in Joshua Tree. And we were just marveling that, well, every time they come out here, we have an amazing time as a family. It's so wonderful. And then on a spur of the moment, let's look at, Look at properties just for kicks because we're kind of like looky-loos. It's fun to look. And then suddenly we found this little cottage that all four of us loved. And we're like, oh my gosh, we could afford this. How crazy is that? And put an offer in. It was accepted. And we were driving back out a couple of days later. We were going to see if we could build a pool. Uh, and Ruby had picked a perfect spot for the pool. And I was going to have a meeting with a pool designer to see if it was actually feasible. And that's why we were going out there. It was a fun lark because it was supposed to just be me and then and everyone wanted to come along. Um, yeah. You know, the, the metaphor people always use for these kinds of experiences, it's like a, a lightning bolt out of the sky because it's so sudden. And the lightning bolt in this situation was a vehicle with a drunk driver behind the wheel, drunk and high, flying through the intersection, struck your family car, T-boned it, I think what I want to do is invite you to um, describe some of the first conversations that you had, the people you spoke with or needed to speak with at the accident site, perhaps, maybe at the hospital later, whatever whatever you remember and you think would be useful to share about those first uh, initial conversations. The very first person I talked to, which was as soon as we got out of the car, I felt very certain, even though I was in shock, I, I felt very certain I did not have any, like, broken bones or... And I, I was wrong. I did have some fractured ribs, but I, I was able to move around. I was able to walk around, and I wanted to right away... Colin was with Ruby, with her body, and people were getting her out of the car, and I wanted to be with heart. But there was... Someone was concerned that something was wrong with my neck. I don't even know why. And they put me in this, like collar, like a neck brace. And they forced me to sit on a bench that was by the side of the road. And this woman who had witnessed it, she just was standing outside the Circle K, sat with me and she coincidentally was a nurse. And I kept saying, let me go, let me go, let me go be with heart. And she kept saying, moms don't look. And like it was this mantra, like moms should not see what is happening. And I was so upset. I felt like an animal in a cage. And there was like a very big EMT just like physically holding me there. And I just feel like it, it informed to me the very beginning of, I think, and a lot of what compelled you to write the book, Colin, is there's these mantras that, that don't make any sense but have become ingrained in us. And this notion that moms don't look, that something terrible is happening to our children and we should be protected from it to me is so damaging. This, this elemental terror is happening. Like, we are their parents. I'm his mother. I should be with him. And the notion that someone is trying to protect you from an experience, to me, makes it that much harder to recover from. I was robbed of the sense of agency of, I need to do whatever I can in this moment. You know, whether... He lives or dies, I need to be with him in this moment. And that notion that people are trying to separate you from your children for your own good is, is just such a very scary notion. And the idea of 
lean into the experience, lean into your pain, lean into whatever time you have together is is very, very powerful. So it was intense to me that that opposition was the was my sort of entryway into this whole new kind of horrible version of life. At what point did you come together and have eye contact with each other with some sort of recognition between the two of you that what had happened had really happened. Colin? Well, we were, as, as Gail said, kind of separated uh, at the crash site. And then Gail was put on a stretcher and put into an ambulance. So the first person that went was the woman who killed our kids, the drunk driver. She was taken first because she was the most alive. And then Hart was taken because they thought maybe they could save him. And then Ruby was taken. They knew that she was dead. They didn't tell us, but they knew that. And then Gail was taken, and I was left alone on the, on the side of the highway. And I turned to the police officer and I said, wait, where are they taking my family? And he started giving me driving directions. And I'm like, I pointed to the wrecked vehicle. I said, that's my car. And he says, oh, oh, well, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and so I got into the ambulance that Gail was in the back of. She didn't know that, but I got into the front of the ambulance and said, I'm coming with you. And we drove for 45 minutes to the hospital. And then we get out, and that's when Gail knew that I was with her. And then at that point, I collapsed into a wheelchair because I, I had cracked ribs and lacerated kidney and things. And so I was in, suddenly in very much pain. The enough shock had worn off that we were in pain. And so we couldn't turn our heads and look at each other. We did not actually look at each other for a very long time. And my glasses got lost, I think, in the crash. So in my mind's eye, I could see things, but in reality, I realized I did not have my glasses. I could barely see anything. It, it, was, it was very surreal. And then when we got to the emergency room, remember, they shouted, don't look over there. And they started right. moving curtains around and everything was so completely alienating. They had to cut my shirt off of me. So they put someone else's shirt on, like someone else who had been in the hospital and left without it. So I'm thinking, who is this person? A teal and blue and turquoise shirt covered in rhinestones that like looked like what somebody would wear on a cruise. And I just remember thinking, like, whose shirt is this? Who am I? Where are my children? I can't, like, everything was so completely alienating. I, I don't want to presume anything here. It just seems that this... Like there's a degree of alienation in this, uh, maybe even loss of identity. This could go on for a very, very long time, could it not? I mean, did you did you find your sense of self, Gail, was in was it altered in any way? At one point, we were speaking with a lawyer, and it was about will we press charges, and what will happen to the driver, and will there be a court, and just all in the early, early days. And I found myself just profoundly wishing that she would have this eternal jail sentence. And I remember thinking, wow, we work with kids in juvenile hall. We are people who are profoundly against the industrial prison complex. We don't think prison works the vast majority of the time. And now here I am with bloodlust for this woman to be incarcerated forever. And I just said to this woman, my identity is taken. I'm not a mother. My identity is taken. I don't feel like myself anymore. I don't feel like someone tethered to reality. And now I'm craving vengeance. Who am I? I really just felt completely disconnected from any part of myself. Ironically, the only thing that did not change was my relationship to God and religion. Because... I do believe in God, but I don't believe in a God that has to do with us on a daily level. It's really more like the God of Job, of like, who do you think you are to think that I'm trifling with this? But I really believe in community. Our synagogue, Ikar, is a remarkable community. I really believe in people showing up for each other, people showing love, empathy, and generosity. And so my religion wasn't shaken. <laughs> But everything else was, which is in contrast to almost everything I've ever read of like, then you'll cry out to God for forsaking you. I was like, I have no beef with God. I just, but I'm in a whirlpool otherwise. 
Gail says you both belong to a remarkable community with values of kindness and generosity and such. That does form a, a bridge, Colin, to your belief system, does it not? Yeah, I, I, I do believe, I have a spiritual side to me, and that is just the belief in the, the power of love and that we're all interconnected. I, I think it was brought home to me when Ruby and Hart were killed, how much of who I am is because of them. And like, how I'm not really a separate human being, am I? If so much of who I am is tied into Ruby and Hart and then in Gale, and that that notion extended to a larger community kind of makes sense to me. We're all, we're not really individuals in that sense. We're, we're all connected because we've all helped change and form each other. I, I like that idea that Ruby and Hart is still alive because people who love them are still alive and they continue to reverberate and inspire. Uh, they were very kind humans. Kindness mattered to both of them. And I can, I can feel that and think about that. In the midst of unthinkable tragedy, the family turned to this community and the community turned to them. One of the funerary traditions involved fellow members of the congregation literally helping to bury the children. We threw soil onto the grave. Then we sat back down and our gathered community continued to bury our children in front of us, shovelful by shovelful. And that was an extraordinary experience. Just the levels of, of awfulness were staggering. Not only <laughs> were, were we already traumatized by the whole event, but of course we were still in pain. We had just been in a, a car crash three days before that. And we were in a lot of physical pain but nothing compared to the emotional pain that we were in. And we had to sit there and watch. But then I grew to appreciate that. I didn't want to pretend they were alive. That was too terrible. I wanted to confront that and deal with it. And watching my entire community bury my children was a way of just reinforcing the reality, keeping me, keeping me grounded and not floating off into an untethered, land of madness. Honestly, madness was terrifying to me. I felt like I was on the edge of madness and I wanted, I wanted that concrete reality. So even the burial itself. And then, then there's another uh, beautiful tradition, which is that after that is finished, the central mourners, they, they now leave the cemetery and they go to their car and their community lines up on either side of the road, makes a pathway and you walk through your community to get to your car. And our rabbi sort of likens it to the idea that there's like there are rails keeping us, protecting us from falling off the cliff. As we walked back to the car, I made eye contact with everybody in this community that was here for me now. And it felt to me like it was important because this is the first time we're laying eyes on each other after this cataclysmic event. And now we have a new relationship. Now I'm the dad with the two dead kids, and you're here to help me. <laughs> and we have a different relationship now. Our world has collectively been rocked, and, and that was very powerful as well. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. You're listening to a conversation with Colin Campbell and Gail Lerner, parents of Ruby and Hart, two teens, whose lives were tragically cut short by a drunk driver. Colin Campbell's book coming out of their experience is titled Finding the Words, Working Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose. Part of my getting to know Gail, Colin, Ruby, and Hart's story entailed a lot of learning for me personally about Jewish funerary traditions, for one thing. Traditions which, from my perspective, afford an unusual level of collective support for the bereaved, in ways that, for me, are deeply touching or stirring. In these practices, sacred intervals of time seem to be important. The formalized seven-day observance subsequent to burial, called Shiva, which is the first demarcated time of mourning for the immediate family of the deceased. Then comes the 30-day mark, called Shloshim, during which some of normal life is gradually resumed, and ultimately the formal end of the mourning period at the end of a full year. Gail, did you approach the seven days of Shiva well-versed in, in what the ritual was intended to do, or was it kind of a new thing, or how did you approach that? Well, we had always sat Shiva for people when I was growing up, but my experience of it was only an elderly person dying. So it was a much smaller thing. It was more like 
you either visited someone's home and basically everyone is quiet until the people who are mourning are ready to talk and they kind of set the terms. If they want to tell crazy funny stories about the person, if they want to just cry and be hugged, if they just want to eat cookies and schmooze, it's whatever the mourner wants. And so I thought of it much more that way. You just come, you tell and hear stories, you eat a meal together, you bring food. And it was a really nice, warm thing. But this was different. The very first shiva, the night of the funeral, my sisters live on the East Coast. They came out to L.A. and they were completely in shock, of course, as Ruby and Hart's aunts. But they were starting to talk about like, okay, where do we get bagels? And our friend Stephen, who is an amazing party planner, is his job and just galvanizer of people is just his essence. He just said, I've got this. And there was suddenly this awareness, like this is no ordinary shiva. There are not enough bagels in the world. I was working at Disney at the time, and he just went right to Disney and said, give me a space, give me a hall, give me, give me, give me, give me all these things. Um, I was a writer on the show Blackish, which was an ABC Disney show at the time. And everyone just jumped up to his requests. It was an amazing thing, like, you know, there's never so many kids at a shiva, you know, but when two children die, their friends come. And I remember my friends, Lindsay and Yamara, who were writers on the show, they said, a lot of these kids are here. They need an outlet. Kids can't stand at cocktail tables. And they got these huge bean bags and giant pads of paper and pens. And they just tapped into like, if we were teenagers in this terrible event, we need a place to sit together and be together. And sure enough, Hart's friends wrote a giant scrapbook of memories of him and pictures of him and that they had all started putting together that night. It was in- incredible. And it was just this very beautiful thing. And, and then at Shiva at our house, it was hundreds of people a day. And Stephen actually organized a valet because we live in a hilly neighborhood. And I remember thinking, my mother was like a wonderful, wonderful person who loved being judgmental. I really made like an art of being judgmental. <laughs> and all I could hear was her saying like a valet at a shiva. But it was like, it was necessary. It was necessary because otherwise no one could park and come be with us. And so the way people were taking care of us was just next level thoughtfulness. And then our ribs had been cracked. And so we really could not hug but everybody wanted to hug us. But it was very, very painful. And you couldn't warn every single person. And so our friend Rebecca Asher was directing on a TV show and she said, I need t-shirts made. And the costume department of that show made t-shirts and that some said, don't hug Gail. And then others said, proxy hugger. And the, those two people would flank me and they, people would look and see the shirt And then they'd look and see the person wearing the proxy hugger shirt, and then they would hug them. And then I got to watch a person I love comforting someone who wants to comfort me. It was so beautiful. It was bizarre, bizarre. but it it was so thoughtful and lovely, and it almost seemed comical. But it it wasn't. It was the most profound taking care of uh, I had ever, ever witnessed. I lost a brother to suicide. It had been coming for a long, long time before it happened. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, lived nearby. We did everything we could to help him. 45 years of age, left a wife and several children. The shock for me was so overwhelming. This was a decade and a half ago. But I remember with clarity how time, time seems to go all haywire. I just remember how it feels where time just isn't what it used to be. I'm wondering if Shiva, for you, Colin, somehow provided some kind of demarcation or a sense of how time was to be managed or when the clock was going to strike. You knew, I mean, that you would be passing through seven days and then 30 days and then a year was there anything about the, any of this that was helpful because it was in formalized lengths of time? I think for me, the, the length of time of Shiva was helpful because it just kept kept happening. So it was the repetition. It was like 
I, I discovered that I really wanted to talk about Ruby and Hart and grief. And then the second night, I had more to say. <laughs> and the third night, I still had more to say because I was just literally processing it, literally trying to understand. And that's what goes on then at, at Shiva as people come every, every day, every night, and, and based upon your cues to them, that determines what, when conversation will happen? Yeah, yeah. The idea is that, first of all, your door is just open. So you don't, no one knocks the door and you don't open the door and say, hello, how are you? You're not hosting in any way, the, the central grievers. You're just in your house and people just walk in the door and then they read the room. And so if we're all just you know, laughing and telling a, a beautiful, funny story about Ruby and Hart, then they join in. And if we're just crying, then they can join that in. Or if we're just sitting in silence. And that was just helpful to me, the repetition. And then marking the end of Sloshim, which is the, the marking the end of the first 30 days, was helpful to me, I think, and Gail too, because it gave us something to do. We had to plan. We had to plan what was going to happen. I think for both of us in the earliest days, not having a task was meant that we were just going to spiral into despair. And so we had something we had to do. And then we decided the LA Arboretum because it's so special to us. And then we decided we wanted to get two trees and have plaques on them, dedicate two trees. And that's the whole process. We had to call the Arboretum and meet with uh, an arborist and pick these trees. And, uh, and, they, and they sped the process. Normally it takes a little longer, but they did it, you know, a rush job, as it were, um, in time for the ceremony. And, uh, and then just figuring out what, how we wanted to have this ceremony play out was a way to give structure to our days. And would you just tell us how community, again, at the Arboretum there after 30 days, how that played out? Yeah, we chose a carefully curated list of people that we thought would be nice to have at that event and invited them specifically. It's a trek to get out there. It takes about a half an hour to drive from Los Angeles out to the Arboretum. And then from there, we picked the most remote corner of the park. <laughs> so you have to take a 20-minute walk at least to get up there. That's a pilgrimage. And it's, to, it's a very wild part of the park. It's, it's very empty. You know, people aren't usually up there. It's very remote. We saw some coyotes up there. And your, your rabbi helped with this? So our rabbi officiated the Shloshim celebration and... She was late. She got stuck in very bad traffic because it's a very out-of-the-way place. And so Colin and I essentially had to vamp because you can't just sit solemnly for a very long time. People are still people. And so we started just telling stories about the kids. And that was actually how we started talking about the peacock stories. Everyone had walked past the peacocks. So we were just kind of telling funny stories about Ruby and Hart because we just... We're like, we have our friends, let's share these memories. And then other people told some stories. And then the rabbi came and then she told just a really beautiful, just stories about Ruby and Hart, about the importance of this Shloshim, this 30-day mark, is the last official commemoration before the one year when you unveil the headstone. And, and she was just saying, look around, look at all these people together it is now your job as a community to, do on your own, approach Gail and Colin, help Gail and Colin, think of them, I think she said, on any random Thursday. Don't wait for an event. And it was just a very beautiful calling together of people to say, Gail and Colin are still here. They still need you. And I remember at first, I was resisting a beautiful ceremony. I didn't want one. I was in a really rage-filled period and still am. I kept saying, and I didn't really mean this, but I kept saying, I want everyone to suffer. I want everyone to see and feel the pain that we're in. And Colin kept saying, really? <laughs> really? Let's talk about some other ways. Like he, he knew not to say, we're not doing that. <laughs> and, we, and we just talked about other ways. And it was interesting because then Sharon, our rabbi at one point said, she had advice for the kids because, again, tons of Ruby and Hart's friends were there. And she said that there was a rabbi whose name I keep forgetting who would say, make every day of your life a work of art. And it really moved me because it reminds me that to make something beautiful 
when you have every alternative to not make anything or to destroy was a very beautiful, not a commandment, but a suggestion, a holy suggestion. So I'm very happy that we did that. We need to talk about the inability of people with their words at times such as this. We get it wrong. We get it wrong over and over and over again. And I, I needed conversation. I went to a grief group. I went to a support group. We'd sit around. Everybody in the room was a survivor who had a, a parent or a sibling or a child who had committed suicide. And I couldn't take it after three sessions because all of the words were just off. Did you have difficulty knowing what to say and when to say it and how to say it? Oh, before Ruby and Heart were killed? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't say anything to other people who are in grief. I'd be too scared. I think that's, that's helped me to have a, uh, an immense amount of compassion and empathy for people who are struggling to talk to me because I was in their shoes for sure, 100%. There's sort of two central things that I think people generally get wrong about this. One is the desire to say something that's going to help, the quote-unquote give comfort. Because oftentimes what that means is trying to find some way of minimizing their pain, right? Trying to, trying to help them, give them comforting thought that's going to help them feel less sad. But the reality is we, we feel sad for a very good reason. <laughs> a person that we've loved deeply is gone forever. And what we really need to do is feel that sadness and be allowed to feel that sadness. And we, it helps, I think it helps all of us to be able to talk to somebody, have somebody listen to us, and genuinely be interested in, in listening to what we have to say so that we can feel not so alone and allow us to just literally process what's happening so we can understand, you know, what's happening in our minds. But my book, it's really the focus is about helping the griever find the words to get the help they need because they're the ones that know what they need. We are all brought up to, to just handle it on our own and not ask for help and not, not be socially uncomfortable by asking people how to help us emotionally. And yet when we did it, when Gail and I did do it, when we asked people or, or told people how, what's going to be helpful to us, they were all so relieved. It was so clearly so helpful. So we developed this thing called a grief spiel. We called it a grief spiel, which we'd pull people aside one-on-one -on -one and tell them we do want to talk about Ruby and Hart because people were scared, right? They're scared about triggering us or saying the wrong thing. And we had to tell them, look, you can't really say the wrong thing. You can't really trigger us because we're already triggered all the way. Our, just, our two kids were just killed. Don't worry about it. You can't make it worse by saying something. Like, not really. Do you know what I mean? And that was a great relief to people. And then just really, we said that we need to talk about Ruby and Hart, and we need to talk about our grief. And that, that allowed them to ask us questions, which helped us. I would much rather you say the wrong thing than not say anything. Because if you say the wrong thing, we can have a conversation. And... I can tell you what's helpful and what's hurtful, and we all know you're only intending to help. But if someone doesn't say anything, then I just feel more alone. It's it's very odd. I I feel a lot like in a in a first world country where it is not war torn or you, there's not a genocide happening against you. This is one of the most extreme kinds of daily life suffering that I can imagine. And I feel very much on the margins of civilization. And it might sound strange to say, I'm doing a podcast, I'm wearing clothing, I have air conditioning. Like, but I feel on this very outer edge of human experience. So when people don't even mention to me the most basic fact of my life, I really feel like, I don't belong as a person. Just someone saying something and hurting my feelings or upsetting me or that would be great rather than just not saying anything. There also is a story though of where you protected yourself, I think before returning to work, where you, you sent the memo and helped people understand what will not help at all. Could you tell us that story? Sure. There are actually two versions of that story. One was when I went back to Blackish. I didn't want people en masse being confused or upset or worried about how to interact with me. So I actually was very lucky. I was given an opportunity to speak with the cast and a large number of the crew. 
and tell them I'm back. I'm still myself. I'm grateful to be with you all. And you can ask me about Ruby and Hart. I, I love talking about them. I want to hear about your kids. You can tell me about your kids. I can laugh. I can cry. All the emotions are fine. This is all safe. And I did specify, though, I knew a lot of people came from different faith traditions. And I said, just please don't don't tell me they're in a better place. Don't tell me God has a plan. I said, if if your faith helps you with that, I'm so glad. Anything that helps anyone through this moment, I'm grateful for. But I believe my children belong with me. I think the better place is here, in our arms, in bed, in in the house, playing. So that was very helpful. And then I went to a job about a year later where I did not know people as well. So I sent an email essentially saying the same. I sent it to all the department heads and said, please share this with everyone on your team because people's kids come up all the time. And... I didn't want to blindside anyone in the middle of a professional day, but I also didn't want to feel like I had to mind my words all the time. Because one thing that we also learned is when people are talking about their children and talking about their day, we can still talk about Ruby and Hart. So much are people saying, oh, the craziest thing happened when my daughter was learning how to drive. And we can have a story about that too. We don't need to preface it by saying they're not here anymore. But if someone asks me if I have kids, I... I want them to either know, maybe don't ask Gail that if you don't want to get into it, or, you know, just be aware of the situation. So, and then recently I've, I had a job where I didn't tell anyone, and that was okay. But it's a it's constantly evolving process, and yeah. that's one thing that I think is helpful to people is when you're just admired in grief or admired in weeping, it feels like it will never end. And I know Colin always talks about this Rilke quote about no feeling is final. Kali, what's the quote? Uh, let yourself feel everything. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Um, and I think remembering that things come in waves and happen in waves is so helpful. You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Colin Campbell and Gail Lerner are the parents of Ruby and Hart, two teens whose lives were cut short by a drunk driver, Colin's book about this all is titled Finding the Words, Working Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose. It seems to me that people, like maybe a rabbi, are more practiced at how to be at the side of grieving people. And I don't want to skirt past who your rabbi is, and I want to talk about breakfasts. That seems to have been an informal ritual that, well, I just thought make you smile, Colin. Yeah. <laughs> Breakfast with the rabbi. I mean, that's a sweet, sweet memory. What happened? Uh, well, first I want to say, I, I've heard horror stories about clergy of all different faiths <laughs> <laughs> saying the wrong things oh, to people well, in grief. Oh, well, I should have said some. <laughs> but some. But our rabbi certainly was wonderful, <laughs> Sharon Browse. She was there. You, you asked her earlier about who were the first people we talked to. And, you know, the crash was, was at night. We got home, I don't know, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And then five, six hours later, there's a knock at the door. And, and there's our rabbi and the head of our, of our synagogue, the two of them, Melissa Balaban and Sharon Browse, are there to literally hold our hands and help us through these worst days. Then Sharon said, would you like to meet every Wednesday for breakfast? And it became our, our weekly breakfast with the rabbi. And we would just vent to her about everything and anything. The grief, the aching, the loss, the frustration with other people, with other grievers and grief groups and everything. She was a wonderful, attentive, loving listener who asked you know, just the right amount of questions. A lot of times I think in grief you can feel like you're stuck. Nothing's changing. As Gail said, we're in this state and we'll always be in this state forever. And it helped to have her just mirror back to us the reality that we were moving through grief. Things were changing. She could tell us in real time, like, well, we've met every week now for two months, and I can tell you that's, that you're not stuck in one place. You're mm-hmm. clearly moving and changing. That was just a, a very helpful idea that she could give us. Were the two of you in your conversations always able, through the initial weeks and months of grief, 
to do what Sharon was doing, the rabbi, for each other? Were you, was it difficult? Were there, I mean, every marriage has miscommunication, right? But I'm just wondering if on this particular issue through these weeks, if there was bedrock in each other for the other. Sharon did that for you at breakfast, but what about lunch and dinner, you know? We both felt very compelled to talk about Ruby and Hart constantly and talk about our pain and talk about our loneliness and talk about our fear. I think there really was true fear that we would go mad. And I think that we both wanted to share our feelings, if only to stay sane and to remind ourselves of what we had and that our children were real, was incredibly helpful. I know there are some couples who who don't like to talk the same amount or the same extent. And I think that's really a struggle. I, I can't imagine not having a partner to share it with. We have friends in our grief group who had gone through really rocky divorces and really can't see their partner as a sounding board. And that to me just seems so painful, so painful. One, a friend in a grief group had lost his spouse the year before he lost his children. And so having that partnership was incredibly, incredibly powerful and very, very important. And in fact, when we are occasionally on a different page, it's it's rattling. And then I have to say, oh, wait, it's, it's bizarre that we've been on the same page as much. Mm. This anomaly is normal. Yeah. That's been really a wonderful convergence. Leaning into grief is kind of the rubric here in a way. I think that's the way you've put it, Colin, and it, you sound still very committed to whatever that function is. But it's involved some informal rituals as well. This is such a, a touching list of things that you do just to stay there with Ruby and Hart. Colin? Yeah, I, I think there's always going to be a part of me that on some visceral level doesn't want to think about Ruby and Hart because it's so painful and doesn't want to look at their photos, doesn't want to spend some time with their friends, doesn't want to read another letter or an email about them or see a photo of them that someone sent. But every time I choose to lean into the pain of it instead, it always feels so much better. And so I think I've learned over the years to not trust the impulse to back away, but to actually trust the, the process of leaning into the pain instead. It's like I'm eating this chip for you, Hardy, right? He loved spicy Cheetos, and I did not. And he, but he would never give up on me. He'd always be like, "Try another one, Dad. Try another one." I was like, "It's been a day or two. You might have a different opinion now." And I'd be like, "Okay," and eat it. <laughs> no, I don't want it. But now it's different. Now it's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna eat this spicy Cheeto for you, Hardy." And I feel like you pay a price for that too, though, right? It's not, it's not just funny and happy. It's it's painful too, but it's more funny and happy than painful. Jumping in the ocean. I love jumping in the ocean and thinking about Ruby and Hart. I want to go see Meg too. It's a ridiculous movie about a giant ancient shark <laughs> because Ruby loved terrible monster movies and she loved Meg 1. I remember I drove. We were in Maine and she was like desperate to see Meg. And I was like, oh my God, really? It's a terrible movie. She's like, I know, but I want to see it, Dad. And so we drove like 45 minutes to find a nearby movie theater and watched Meg together. Uh, and listen to ABBA songs all the way. I have this beautiful memory of her. But we saw a lot of terrible monster movies together, Ruby and I. So I've got to go see Meg too now. Gail, uh, you, you have your own rituals? I definitely have my own rituals. There was one year during the pandemic when we couldn't get friends together in person to celebrate their birthdays. Their birthdays were one day apart, March 29th and 30th. We asked people to write letters to them. And then we were in Joshua Tree for the pandemic and we went up to the rocks and we read the letters out loud. And then we ultimately got a little waterproof box, element-proof box, and put all the letters in and kind of hid it in a little place up in the rocks. So that was incredible. We got, I don't know, 150 letters? Letters they wrote to Ruby and Hart for their birthdays. One year, I remember feeling very, very sad and lonely on their birthdays. And we asked people to gather in a meadow near our neighborhood and everyone held a candle and we stood in a circle and told stories about them. Ruby had incredibly strong, thick nails and she would get them in this like deep cobalt blue full of sparkles 
starting when she was like eight or nine, I would say, oh, Ruby, that's so pretty. That's like what Russian prostitutes wear. And she was like horrified and delighted. The accident was in 2019. And as we tape this interview, it's 2023. Gail and Colin are now fostering to adopt a pair of teenage siblings, a brother and a sister. All four of them participate in important family events, such as marking Hart and Ruby's birthdays. In one case recently, the two women in the home, Gail and the foster daughter, honored Ruby by getting manicures together. And when Ruby's birthday was coming up, she asked me what we should do. And I said, you know, Ruby loved manicures and she loved Russian prostitute blue. So let's go get manicures and I'm going to get Russian prostitute blue. And you don't have to get that. You can get any color you want, but just it's an honor of how much Ruby loved manicures. So I got full on Russian prostitute nails and she got French manicure. So that meant just the tip was glittery blue. And I just thought it was so beautiful that she was like, I don't want the whole thing, but I'll do this sort of elegant version of it. And it was just, I just knew Ruby would have loved that. You know, we went and saw a band that Hart's friends were in play before they went to college. Colin and I took them out for dinner for graduation dinner. Things like that. They just, they just help us. Some days they're painful. Taking them out to dinner was one of those things that my friend Corey said, are you sure? Will this help you to take his friends out for high school graduation dinner? And I just thought, yes, absolutely. So choosing our moments and private and public is very, very helpful. Those rituals are really, really crucial. Your rabbi, Sharon, she said that you were making progress over time and something good was happening there. Were you able to observe, I mean, Colin is the one who used the word untethered. Were you able to see him become a little bit more grounded as time went on? Yes, definitely. When we think back, we were afraid to leave our home. We were so in grief and terrified of the outside world and what the outside world holds. We were scared to leave our home. So even the fact that we leave the house, we go out in the world, our friends, the first place we went was to our friend's house across the street for dinner. And they said, just walk across the street. You can see the house from where we'll have dinner. And at any time you need to go home. And it was this incredible thing that we literally, the first place we went was our dear friends where we could see our home from there. The fact that Colin can go out for two hours and I don't need to call him and text him and make sure he's alive anymore. Like, I know that's growth. I see him growing in that way. For me, the the biggest thing was that Colin really started writing almost immediately about his experience. And seeing him do that, it was the way he was just writing toward his discomfort, toward his distress, it felt remarkably healing. I mean, we have a complicated relationship with the word healing, but I could just see his brain working. I could see his brain trying to make sense of what was happening in a way that I really recognized. Before the crash, I relied on my friends a lot more than he did. I I just loved going out for girls' nights and hikes and walks and drinks and And he would always say, like, I have you and the kids. Why do I want to go anywhere? And I'd say, oh, fine, you're the better person. (laughs) But it was hard to persuade him to go out and have fun. But then I think once the kids died, he went, I need friends. And he started going out with people and reaching out. And that I really saw as a huge sign. And he was also taking care of me right away. And you did say very quickly, we should think about adopting. That was, I think you said that even just a few weeks. So just the fact that he was even imagining a future. I understand that the institutions that handle foster children didn't think it was such a great idea for you to rush right into that. Yeah, you have to get certified. You have to take classes. And a lot of the focus is really sort of educating you about this population of youth that have endured a lot of trauma and loss and understanding what that means. And we know about trauma and loss. (laughs) We got that chapter covered. But as part of the sort of orientation, we met with the person in charge, and she said, you know, normally when we have prospective parents who have experienced anything traumatic, like a loss of a job or a divorce or a death, 
we generally require people to wait for a year. And has it been a year since you lost your children? And we were like, whoops, it's been three months. <laughs> and, uh, and it was very wise because we were not ready at all. <laughs> but once the year had come up, we felt we were ready and we felt like we are not in denial and we are definitely processing our loss and we're making this decision very consciously and carefully. And we're not trying to replace Ruby and Hart. We're not trying to, you know, save somebody. We're, we just want to have a family. And it's a complicated dynamic because, of course, there are there's a part of us that does want to sort of, <laughs> not replace Ruby and Hart, but like somehow have what we had before. And, and we're not on a path to have what we had before. We're on a very different path. Um, so the two children that we're fostering to adopt now are very different and we're going to have a very different life. Um, it's not about trying to get back what we had. It's about exploring together, the four of us, what we can create. Well, well knowing knowing that it will be very different, that it's not going to be, what's the nature of that appeal? Is it exciting for you to think we're rebuilding something entirely new? It's exciting in the sense that we're engaged in life. That The notion of being untethered, we're tethered, tethered to them. We're tethered to our future together. And so on one hand, it's very painful. There are very few people out in the world whose children are killed who then foster to adopt teenagers. Because <laughs> teenagers in the foster system have a lot of years of trauma. It's a challenge. So it's very rare what we're doing, but we want this. Our kids were teenagers. We hunger for teens in all of their difficulty. And it is challenging. It's challenging emotionally to be grieving and then also parenting kids that need parenting and don't want parenting because they're teenagers. Right? And yet we do get a lot out of it. We had a pool party for our foster daughter and she invited a bunch of friends and here they are splashing around in the pool and having an amazing time. On one level, it's, it's amazing. This pool has got kids in it again. Kids having fun. How beautiful is that? And on another level, how terrible is that? Ruby and Hart aren't here. But it's so much better than having an empty pool when Ruby and Hart aren't here, you know? So it, it hurts my heart, but it also helps my heart. And so it's definitely all about leaning into the pain uh, to get something else out of it, to get the joy out of it. At this point in our conversation, as we were recording for this episode... Gail had to leave to go pick up the kids, but Colin and I were able to have one final exchange. We've got this show. It's called Constant Wonder. It's on the premise that there is opportunity in life for each of us to encounter things that have real meaning, deep meaning, you know? And love is one of those, and it comes fraught. It's perilous because of what can be lost and what will be lost when we love people. So many of our people who listen to us just assume that, that when I talk about awe, I'm talking about a positive value, but it's not necessarily that way because we do have the word awful, right? It's something that's terrible, horrific. It's fearful. And, and I'm wondering if your view of what is possible in the way of awe is kind of intact through this or if there's a new perspective on awe, something that I don't even know you're going to say, but has to do with this world we live in that affords us opportunities and some of them will have something we call awe. I'm going to just leave it there and just see if that uh, sparks anything for you. Yeah, it does. I'm in awe of this process that we're engaged in right now with these two foster kids. So we, the four of us, are on this path to make a family. And eight months ago, we were strangers. And we're coming to the table with all sorts of our own issues, <laughs> yet here we are and we're developing love for each other. And it's a slow going. It's not instantaneous. It's not some like fairy tale. <laughs> we're thinking about Ruby and Hart. They're thinking about their biological family and or not. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but nobody, no, none of us in our past would have envisioned this future, Right or chosen it. But here we are, and here, given the cards we've dealt, we are choosing it. And that seems quite extraordinary to me, quite mysterious. It's almost like an arranged marriage that works, right? Hopefully. <laughs> That's kind of amazing. And then I think in all about 
the life I had with Ruby and Hart and how beautiful it was. I don't think I took it for granted at the time. I, I, I think I was pretty good at cherishing it. I was a really active dad and I have so many wonderful memories of time I got to spend with them. But the idea that life involves death and grief is something that I didn't really have to think about before. I could sort of skate by and just assume it was gonna to happen to somebody else. And now I have to wrestle with that truth that there's no guarantees for anybody. And so you could say, oh, well, foster kids, and that might not work out. And it's like, well, yeah, but any child-parent relationship might not work out for all sorts of different reasons, right? There's no guarantees of anything in this life. And so, so can we make the choice to love and live in spite of it all? You've been listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. We're deeply grateful to Colin Campbell and Gail Lerner for being with us today. Colin's book is titled Finding the Words, Working Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose. This episode was produced by Eric Schultzka with help from Camden Lamb and Brian Barba. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.